This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. there, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers and bring you their tips, tricks, and their personalities. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Yeah, and on today's episode, it's a special episode because... It's all Q&A. Well, almost all Q&A. We're actually going to start today in the pub with a special interview with Nick from Block 15 as Denny and I enjoy his sticky hands. Yeah, it's a brewery up in Corvallis, Oregon, near where I live, and they make a variety of incredible beers, and we're going to be tasting one of them on the show today. Mmm, beer. and mm, beer. Yeah, and then, of course, we're going to launch into nothing but your questions. And boy... Do you guys have questions? So many questions, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if by the time we get to the end of this, we're going to call episode 37 a Q&A episode as well. <laughs> well, we'll have to see, but man, there were a lot of questions and there were some really, really good ones. So, hey, uh, Denny, why don't we get some uh, feedback out here about the Walmart lawsuit? And it's actually a voicemail. Oh, cool. Hey, Denny and Drew. It's Jason Hammond from out here in southwest ohio driving in a wonderful downpour on my way to work listening to the podcast and you guys brought up the ohio lawsuit against walmart for their uh air quotes craft beer and i just had to call in and say that uh i think it's kind of ridiculous that people are going to sue over this because first of all they're not gouging you for it. In fact, a 12-pack these days is twelve seventy-four plus tax, which is cheaper than the fizzy yellow stuff from 
Bud or Miller. Um, I drink it occasionally. It's not great beer. It's not horrible beer. They have a English amber style beer, which is quite nice. The Belgian wit is spot on. The pale and the IPA I could do without. And if you look at it, it says it's brewed by Trouble Brewing in New York, which if you look it up, it gives you one of Genesee's brewery uh, addresses. So, um, going back to your cream ale, the Genesee cream ale is a great beer. And uh, I don't know. I just don't know what all the fuss is. I think people can uh, do their own research. There's enough information, and the internets are widely available enough that people can do some searching and figure it out and we all need to quit being so tight and if you like a beer drink it and if you don't don't that's all I gotta say so brew experimental and brew wacky and brew on cheers hey Jason thanks so much for getting in touch with us and giving us your opinion and uh, as you know we pretty much agree with you it's a silly thing to be worried about all you have to do is read the bottle and you can see where it's made uh, Drew did you see the thing about uh Kona Brewing going through the same kind of thing now. Oh yeah, I mean it's going all over the place. Yeah, I mean people people were like getting ready to sue Kona Brewing because the beer wasn't brewed in Kona, and they said, "Oh, you know the Hawaiian cachet, you know, they can charge more." Everybody knows where the beer is brewed. It says on every bottle and every six pack that it's brewed in the Pacific Northwest. Come on, people, worry about something important. Yeah, well, I mean, I get it. There are people who feel like they need to defend the wall, so to speak, uh, <laughs> of craft beer, and that's all well and good. And I'm much more of the opinion of the only good I think the lawsuits do in terms of the fact I think they have no merit is that they serve as a, a educational blitz to make people aware that this is going on. Because I do think there's a fair number of people who really aren't aware. And so I'm fine with the educational aspect of it, but I'm still going to roll my eyes at the lawsuit. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, people, if if you're getting upset about uh, your beer, just read the label and start there. So, uh, before we head over to the pub for the interview, we want to remind you about how you can support the podcast. You go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and you'll see a whole bunch of links you can click on down the right-hand side. There's one for the American Homebrewers Association, so you can uh, join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy. You can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine. If you want to order something via Amazon, you can click on the Amazon link there. And when you do any of those, uh, we get a little bit of money back from them. Uh, it doesn't come out of your pocket at all, and it helps support the podcast and uh, us traveling around and doing interviews and stuff like that. And maybe more importantly, there's a link there for Patreon. And if you click on the Patreon link, you can contribute to our charity, which is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. We love helping out animals. And uh, so they're our charity now. We're trying to raise a thousand bucks for them. So please click on that Patreon link and contribute whatever amount seems right to you. Yeah, you know, the dogs are awesome. They need your help. So what the heck? Give a buck. Yeah, really, man. Um, you know, the dogs can't do it on their own. We got to help them. And uh, helping a dog uh, will definitely put your karma right for a long time. Yep. 
I'll go with that. <laughs> okay, man. So should we uh, head over to the pub now and uh, try that tasty Block 15 sticky hands? Oh, boy, you betcha. <laughs> okay. We're going to uh, make our way over to the pub, and we'll be right back. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I've done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. We are in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA. And uh, we're not drinking beers today because we already drank the beer. We had a chance to uh, talk to Nick Arzner from Block 15 Brewing in Corvallis, Oregon a few days ago. We talked about what it's like starting and running a small brewery. And uh, most pleasantly, we uh, tasted some of the beer that they make there called Sticky Hands. And if you think that this is an over-the-top IPA, you would be right. Great hop expression. I loved everything about it. Uh, you got any comments about the beer before we get into this? I want more. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. I know, man. It was really good stuff. Uh, okay, so uh, go grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving somewhere. Uh, sit back and listen to us talk to Nick Arzner of Block 15 Brewing in Corvallis, Oregon. Okay, we get to do one of the things that we like best here, which is tasting beer during the show. And uh, today we're tasting a beer from Block 15 Brewing in Corvallis, Oregon, and we have the owner of Block 15, Nick Arzner, on the line with us. How are you today, Nick? Doing great, thank you. Great, thanks so much for uh, for joining us here today. So, um, tell us a little bit about Block 15 for people who don't live around here and may not uh, be familiar with it. Sure, we um, we opened up in 2008 in downtown Corvallis, Oregon, as a uh, brew pub, little seven barrel brew pub system, and then uh, mainly you know brewed for in house. Somewhere between, uh, we'd always have twelve. 16 beers on tap, a lot of them rotating. And then in uh, 2015, we opened a little bit larger production facility, also in Corvallis, in South Corvallis. We built from the ground up with a 20-barrel system, and we um, proudly self-distribute all of our beer um, out of that production facility, so we're able to um, get our beer to uh, a few more people in the Northwest. Uh, only so that's kind of uh the quick nutshell um the kind of history of block 15 and our, our breweries so uh were you a home brewer before you started doing this i i did i i was um uh, a fairly intense home brewer for a pretty short period of time i think about two years um and kind of by happenstance i kind of wanted to get into home brewing and then my my parents figured out that uh, Corral's Brewing Supply, uh, owned by Joel Ray, yep. and my dad 
my dad coached him in swimming in high school. So <laughs> when they when they figured that out, they gave me a really nice gift certificate for Christmas, and, and that kind of gave me the the ability to you know kind of roll in there and and uh, buy my first stuff, and then and then start a relationship with Joel, which you know I consider him a very good friend now, you know, through the years. Yeah, um, I, I've known Joel for many years, and he is uh, kind of a oh, fixture yeah. on the Corvallis brewing scene, isn't he? Absolutely. I mean, he is a he's a hell of a guy, and and, and uh, he's definitely helped drive craft beer in this area for for a shoot years. I don't know how old is this shop? Fifteen years? Twenty years? Uh, know. You know, I met him. I met him twenty years ago when I first started brewing, and he had been going for a while at that point. Yeah. So. Great guy, awesome shop, not just for home brewing, but also uh, cheese making and, of course, bottled beer and wine. Yeah, um, yeah. Great guy. Yeah, so. right. So one of the things that I'm always impressed with when I go to Block 15 is the variety of beers that you have there. Uh, is, mm-hmm. is that, like, one of your big commitments to, to make sure there's something for everybody? Well, you know, when, when we opened in 2008, I'd been frequenting brew pubs for quite some time all over the nation my uh, i spent some time in the midwest my wife's from michigan anywhere we'd travel we would go to breweries or brew pubs and what i realized you know back in 2008 or you know 2007 2006 as i was kind of doing research you know when having a brew pub was a pipe dream uh, that a lot of the a lot of the breweries were um their offerings were pretty static and and kind of uninteresting after a little while it's like hey everybody has a pail and an ipa and something dark blah, blah, you know maybe six beers and then one seasonal and then one time in in michigan visiting um family with my wife we went to a, a little a place called dragon mead and it was the craziest thing they had like 50 of their own beers on tap and wow. I was, yeah i was peeking in the back of their brewery and the owner comes up behind me and says hey come on in and I, I might get this a little incorrect, but they were doing something crazy. Like they had a three and a half barrel system, but they had like three kettles and two mash tuns and just a shitload of, of tanks. And so his, you know, anyway, and that it, it occurred to me, I'm like, wow, this is so, this gotta be so great. Now, in my opinion, that'd be really hard to manage. And so from kind of that point on, I said, Hey, when we do, when we have our brewery, this pipe dream, we're going to have the standards and we're going to do them really well, but we're going to rotate not one seasonal, not two seasonal, not three seasonal, but we're going to rotate half our list and, and make it interesting, not just for the brewers, but for our customers. So that was, uh, for the time, not very common. You know, the, the common thread I kept seeing was the same, you know, six, seven beers and one or two seasonals. So that was kind of how that started and has really continued with, with the way we offer. And so it, makes it interesting for us, it challenges us, and then it really makes it interesting for our customers um, to try something new or to, hey, hey, I remember this beer from a year ago to bring it back. Right. Um, and that's the kind of basis we were, we were founded on. Yeah, you know, man, I, I love it when I go in there because, you know, you, you have lagers, you, of course, have all the great Pacific Northwest-style beers, mm-hmm. you have Belgian-style beers, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and generally you have something that I had never even thought about before, you know? I, sure. You guys, you guys are real creative, and there's a lot of variety there, and man, everything is so well-made, that's that's one of the things I, I always look for. Uh, m- my tastes are 
may, maybe more limited than other people. So I may not go for some of the more out there kinds of things. So what I look for in a beer, no, that's my job. Yeah, right. That's what Drew does. <laughs> <laughs> but so what I look for when I go to a place is a beer that is so well made that it just blows me away. Like, how did they do that? And I, I always am like that with your beers. So awesome. Thank you. Hey, thank, thank well, you for hey. doing it, man. <laughs> So do you- well, and I, I noticed one thing uh, you were talking earlier about Dragon Mead, and <clears throat> very much like Southern Winemaking, who we had on the show uh, last year, you know, doing the same sort of thing, 20, 20, 30 taps out of a small, like, single to three-barrel system. Now, you were doing this out of your seven-barrel system. Now, I'm really curious, now that you have your production facility with that bigger system, is that a lot harder to kind of keep that same attitude going? Because, I mean, now you're talking about you're putting more beer out there which for a lot of people would say restricts the amount of variety you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, well, there's kind of two ways to look at it. You know, we're running both breweries now, so variety-wise we actually do more because now we have an additional brewery. For what we what we kick out of our production facility, so it's a 20-barrel system. We have a few 20-barrel tanks, a few 40-barrel tanks, and the, a few 60-barrel tanks. Um, we're still able to do a, a good amount of variety but, you know, when you get a distribution, you know, what drives, um, you know, what do people want out there? And, and the reality is is that your number one selling beer is whatever one-off IPA you have, and your number two selling beer is whatever other one-off IPA you have, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so... and, and Followed then by the session IPA. Right, sure. And, and, then, and then, you know, but then part of it also is attitude, and we say, well, fuck it, we're also going to throw some lagers in there and stuff. We understand that we could sell a lot more beer if we were doing, you know, some other styles. But so we're, you know, we do, uh, um, I know we'll talk about Sticky Hands later. That is our, there's Sticky Hands and Gloria, which is our Pilsner, are the only two beers that we brew there consistently. And so Sticky Hands we have on a schedule, so it's canned fresh every Monday. Gloria is packaged canned fresh about every three, four weeks. Um, is kind of an unfiltered lager. So other than that, we we do rotate a lot through there. Again, mostly one-off IPAs, double IPAs, or I like to kind of call them hop forward ales as styles have been, you know, (laughs) completely chewed up and spit out and thrown apart, you know. So we call them mainly hop forward beers. We refer to them as IPAs for, you know, people kind of understand what they're getting into. Um, but, but, But we're able to achieve a lot of variety still, even on the production side. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're also self-distributing, that we, we have direct connection to the retailers we're selling to, you know, we're not in a book and don't have to, up, you know, we're not updating books or keeping things, you know, constant or consistent because our customers are, are the are the places that, that want variety. So, um, Boy, that's, made our, that's, that's quite a commitment to uh, self-distribute, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you're well aware of that, huh? Yeah, you know, uh, we did. Um, you know, we've we, we've met with a lot of distributors who who really wanted to partner with us and had some great conversations. And maybe sometime in the future, you know, that's what you know that's the route we go. But you, we we had the um, you know the ability because of having a brew pub and some and a, a really healthy business going there and then opening the tap room and our tap room portion of the production facility has been very healthy business. You know, I was able to say, Hey, we're going to take a year and, 
and self-distribute, not sign with a distributor, even if we want to, because I want to feel out this field. I want to, I want to learn things. I want to, you know, what, do, you know, where do we want to be? What's our place as a brewery? And what I found, I have a very talented team um, on uh, across the board. Straight, I mean, across the board, my whole organization is very talented. But I, a very uh, talented sales and distribution team and manager, and you know what we found is that. You know, there's really there's really small breweries. Um, you know, maybe a thousand barrels a year or less. There's big breweries. You know, up over ten, fifteen, twenty thousand. And there's a lot bigger breweries, right, into the hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands. And we really fall into this little niche kind of in between. And and you know, we're doing combined about four thousand barrels a year right now from both breweries. Mm-hmm. And we're building another building in the back um, to help with our distribution. And you know, we'll. we'll pump up to 6,000, 7,000, but I look at everything and that's where I want to stay. You know, that's where, and we will be able to self-distribute that, at least is what we're thinking right now. Um, and that keeps my hand on everything. It keeps, um, you know, our ability to compensate our employees really well for the positions they're in. And it, it, it keeps us relatively small. So, it, you know, essentially we have several different businesses. We've got a restaurant, we have a tap room, we have a pub brewery, we have a production brewery, and we have a distribution company. <laughs> right. <laughs> we right. manage all those things. So we make it, you know, we make it work and, and uh, you know, we have a good time doing it. And at the end of the day, we have the most control of our product, which is uh, very important to us. Sure. So what's your distribution area right now? You know, we do, we, we get beer up to Seattle is the furthest north we go every four Every four weeks, we make a, a trip up there, and we go as far south as uh, Medford. Mm-hmm. Um, we call those long haul, long haul days, and those we get about every four weeks. And then, um, and then we're in Portland every week, and Eugene every week, Corvallis, and right. we oh, we we do go east to Bend uh, on a four week cycle as well. So that's kind of we, you know we set it up, we we set it up and managed it really well. Um, to, to kind of hit what we want, and we have three different distribution vehicles. Um, but you know, we're we're real time we're real time distributors. We you know we let you know what we have uh, when you order it, and and we get our orders correct ninety nine percent of the time. <laughs> you know, that's and, pretty good. And it's fresh. You know, we're selling we're selling uh, we're selling hot forward beer out of tank. You know, before it's out of tank, right? And so we'll we'll sell it and then package it up and deliver it. And right now, that's what people want. Yeah, um, you know, really fresh, hot forward beers. And people's tastes are changing as they start to realize this. And they then they go back to a bottle of whatever that's been on the shelf for three months and go, "Well, shit, that IPA is maybe not what I really like anymore." <laughs> really. So uh, before we get into uh, drinking some sticky hands here, do you have a favorite style of beer or a favorite beer? For me to drink personally, or for yeah, me to, yeah, work, yeah. to for, work with? No, for you to uh, for I pro, I drink. It's it is a toss up between. I like a really damn good pilsner, um, Heater Allen's pilsner. Oh other yeah. Than, uh, other than my own, I really like my own pilsner because I've created it and adjusted it time and time again to where I like. But other than that, Heater Allen's is a is a phenomenal pilsner that I drink a lot of. So pilsners in general, uh, Freem makes a really great pilsner also sure that do. I really enjoy. And other than that, you know, I, I kind of, I, I really do like a, somewhere along the lines of a single IPA mm-hmm. style, something that, you know, I can have, have two or three of, um, and that's good and fresh and vibrant. Um, you know, those are probably the two styles I like. 
and, and those are exactly my two favorites too, man. So yeah, I, I can right. really relate to that. Uh, well, now, here's my question: How many of how many pints of sticky hands can you have at one time? Well, that I, I got two answers to that question: How many can I have, <laughs> <laughs> and, and how many should I have? I um, I, I normally won't. I wouldn't. I normally don't have more than two of those. Normally, if I drink a sticky hand, it's probably a sticky hand, and then I'm finishing my night with some Gloria right. or some Pilsners. You know, I, I, the beer is kind of designed to be like, in, you know, uh, in a way, a, a pint is kind of a perfect amount. Mm-hmm. And be it you know, being an eight percent alcohol, you know, and you know, depending on how big you are. I mean, I'm you know, I'm about two hundred twenty pounds, so maybe for me, more a pint and a half, you know. But my wife, who's one hundred twenty pounds, maybe she <laughs> should only have a three quarters of a pint. Right. So do you, uh, see where you're making up the difference, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you do any I of the? Take, I take care of hers. Do you do any of the brewing, Nick? I do. Um, it, it was really important to me. I used to do a lot of the brewing, and of course, as you get bigger, you. He had pulled away into more administrative right. things, but I, I brew every Thursday, and that's, um, that's something I've stuck with, um, and that's really important to me. And so I kind of flop between both production faci- or the production and uh, facility and brew pub, and like tomorrow I'm brewing at the pub, and you know, and so I do brew, um, I do brew once a week, and other than that, mainly right. you know it's administrative. I create all mostly all of our recipes and work with you know suppliers and and do research and you know kind of tweaking things and 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 develop things so cool okay i I wonder if the brewers on friday in the in the locations where you're brewing go ah damn it the boss was in here last night i guess we better get in early and clean up the system (laughs) yeah pretty much Yeah, it keeps them on their toes when they know I'm going to be around. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. Okay, I'm getting thirsty, so I'm going to pop this can now. There we go. Getting beer all over my computer. It's not the first time. Okay, so what can what can you tell us about sticky hands, Nick? The the recipe, the procedure. Sure. So. Um I don't know how deep you want me to go, but I'll start with, I, I believe this the Sticky Hands program was started about five years ago. I get my years kind of mixed up, but we were coming out of a, a hop slump. You know, we kind of got caught with our pants down as far as hop contracting and stuff went the year or two prior. And so I was kind of, I had been handcuffed. Well, I had gotten on top of all the contracting, so when the, that year started, I had a lot more hops available, and I said, hey, we can finally do a consistent, um, roughly double IPA. Because when we would do them, people would love them, of course. And so I said, well, I really want to find what for us and for our customers is perfect hop experience is what I realized we were doing. And so um, we brewed the beer, called it Sticky Hands, um, which is a reference to when you work with a lot of hops, as you guys probably know, your hands get sticky from all the, you know, the resin, the lupulin, and everything on there. That was kind of the idea. Like, we're with so many of these, it kind of gets your hands sticky. And so it started as a beer. Uh, we would do it at our pub. We'd do a double batch, and we'd do it once a month. And we would do a variation roughly every three months. And that gave us the ability to uh, 
you know, brew the beer and then maybe, maybe try something completely different, like a completely different hop routine or a completely different yeast or a completely different water treatment or combination and then say, hey, is there something we like from that? Let's insert that back into the base version or the, you know, the OG version is kind of what we call it. And so we did this for years and we started bottling it once a month in 750s because that's all we could, we could do at our brew pub. Uh, on this little hand, we, we hand built this bottling rig, piece of shit, but <laughs> right it worked on. <laughs> as, long, as long as you as long as you drink the beer fresh, and um, it just kind of created this big following. And so, especially when we would do um, variations, and so when we so that's kind of the, this beer has evolved through the years, and it continues to evolve. The base version is a lot is a lot more static than it used to be, but I do look at it and think about it and make subtle tweaks to it. You know, as new hop, you know, hop contract years come in, those hops are different, even if it's the same variety. Um, so adjusting it. So the idea is this beer that is really fresh, vibrant, and it kind of, it kind of hits all spectrums on the hops, you know, all those characters that you're looking for. So a lot of citrus, some pine, some mango, and, and it's just kind of wrapped up by this body that supports it, but it's not, obtrusive and, and the same thing with the bitterness. It kind of backs it up, but it's not too bitter. And, and so that essentially is sticky hands, the, so the beer. Can, can you tell us what hops you use? Uh, normally I don't, you know, we use a combination of um, old school hops. So there, you know, there, there is some Centennial in there. Um, there's a little bit of Columbus in there. And then we do kind of use some of the newer hops, which actually aren't even that newer anymore but five years ago they were like amarillo there's some amarillo in there and citra mm -hmm. and mosaic as well and then the one of the kind of signature moves on that is um i use a co2 hop extract in the kettle as well right um later kind of later in the kettle and that's something we started working with about five years ago as well um when it when co2 hop extracts are a little bit less known i used to have um, one of the hop suppliers make a special extract for me out of Apollo. Nice. Which is a very citrusy kind of dank hop. And so it's kind of one of the signature um, kind of ingredients of the beer, how we use it, where we use it in the kettle, really adds the feel of that beer and, and kind of the hop character. Right. Now, do, do you think that Apollo still, the characteristics hang out even after going through the extract process or... Does, but it's different. So if you, you know, if you were to have like uh, Apollo hops in your hand, and then if you were to open um, um, some hop extract after it's been heated up and, and smell it, you don't want to, you don't want to put that on your hands because it, it's so sticky. You know what I mean? You, right. I, I wear, I wear gloves when I work with it because it's so sticky. But it's, as, it's, um, it's kind of not as vibrant like as like fresh orange rind, but almost more like cooked like marmalade. Right, if that right. if that makes well, sense, and so it's it's different, but it but it's there, man. Well, we would also like to warn people uh, as homebrewers now that extracts are more and more available at the homebrew level. Uh, resist the temptation if you get any of it on your hands. Don't touch it to your tongue. You're right. You know, you know when you, you I, I was that. just I was just going to say, uh, you know, I I, uh, 
I, I teach at Hop and Brew School pretty much every year up at YCH. And uh, last year when they took us out to the uh, extract processing plant, they were handing out samples for people to, to look at and sniff. And one guy actually put some on his finger and put it in his mouth. And uh-huh. he, he regretted it. Yeah, I've never done that. And <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm gonna, uh, we'll never do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I hope not. So yeah. I'm, I'm getting thirsty, Drew. You ready for a taste? Uh, I don't know what you've been waiting on. I've been drinking. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just getting into it now. The, uh, the aroma, man. That's one of the things I love about this beer. That is about the freshest hop aroma you can possibly get. You know, it's just thank you. Yeah. You got all that big big pine. There's some kind of nice citrus fruits behind there. Uh, one thing I, I was going to say when you started to talk about the extract, and before I realized Denny hadn't been drinking, I'm noticing that like this and say Plenty of the Elder and a couple of the other beers that are out there that do that I know use hop extracts for bitterness and whatnot. There's such a a crisper, cleaner character to the bitterness. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where you're trying to get all of that IBU charge. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be very indicative of extracts, which is the reason why I hope that more people adopt them when they're trying to make these, you know, mega hoppy beers or mega hop right. forward beers. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it is, it is clean and straightforward and the hops are in your face and there's a little bit of sweetness coming from the malt. I mean, there's, it's not an overly bitter beer, but it's an extremely hoppy beer. Mm-hmm. And that was, it, it, or just to get back, you were talking about the hop extract, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, when, when you're able to use that extract and not have all that vegetal mass if you're using hops, that really does translate to that beer. Um, and, you know, we're using, I'm sure you guys have heard about the new Lupulin hop powder. Yeah. Um, of a cryo yep. powder. We've been using that now for several months. That's not in the sticky hands you're drinking, but we've done um, a lot of trials on that. In fact, we have a whole... Uh, hop forward series called the Dab Lab that uses CO2 hop extract and now lupulin powder, and it's another way. It, um, and hopefully, it'll be available to home brewers in the future because it's another way to get really good clean hop character with less of that vegetative kind of um, character, or you know, the chlorophyll character that you're going to get when you use a shitload of hops. Right. Um, yeah, I saw I saw that powder process at Hop and Brew School last year and was blown away. And it was so secret that uh, you know, uh-huh. they would hardly even let us talk about it. But uh, yesterday they put out a release saying that it is now available to commercial brewers and it yep. should be available to home brewers by summer. So uh, Very cool. I, I am looking forward to that. It's there's, amazing there's, stuff. There's tricks to using that, it's, but once you figure it out, it's, it's, um, it's a cool product. Well, once I get my hands on some, I may be getting in touch with you for some tricks, yeah, man. Yeah, shoot, shoot me an email. Well, hey, why don't we ask for a, a top-secret tip right now? For what? Here. So, sure. For so the, what would be your top tip for using the uh, cryo powder? Uh, uh, to combine it with pellets when you're using it. So what we found is um, both in the kettle and in the dry hop, what we do is the crowd powder, it, it kind of comes in, it's, it's, um, um, it's in a mylar bag, and it's kind of formed together, not in like a brick by any means, but what we do is we take that, and in the bag, we kind of beat it up, we call it our BOH, Big Orange Hammer, <laughs> and we get it broke up as much as we can, and we take a bucket, 
And so we always use pellets in combination with the cryo. So on a normal beer, you know, I would remove half of those pellets and put it in cryo instead normally or right. not half, whatever the hell amount you want. And then what you do is you get the cryo, you once it's measured out, you put it in with those pellets and then you kind of continue to beat it up and mix it together. Because what will happen if you don't do that, you'll put the cryo in, especially on a dry hop, the shit will just kind of float at the top or mm -hmm. stick to the side of your fermenter. When you add it with the pellets, you know, those pellets, when they hit that beer, you see that because that energy that's created and that churning that creates, right. it helps. Mm -hmm. it, it, it mixes all of that um, powder in with it. So that, that's my trick. That's our trick from trial and error on the cryo powder. We've had really, really good results. Have you experimented at all with the other half of the cryo powder, which is the debittered leaf? I have not. No, yeah. not, not yet. I don't know where I would use well, that. At. And I was going to say on the uh, on the pellet side, it sounds like you're you're basically your tip there is kind of making the you know nacho flavored extreme jacked hop pellet using cryo powder. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they they also might be they were asking us brewers if they, if we might like to see the cryo pelletized, and we said you know of course we'd love to see that. So that actually if that. If that were to react like a normal pellet, then you wouldn't need to go through all of that stuff. But, right. you know, until they send it to us and we try it, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it is a really cool product. I mean, we got a sample of it, and after the first time I used it, I, uh, for what my contracts with Hop Union, I switched three of my varieties to all cryo. I said, uh, <laughs> just wow. Switch, switch it all. Wow. Yeah, man, I've been I've been promised a sample for the last six months, and I'm hoping that now that it's uh, out on the market, I can actually get one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good stuff. So, so Drew, uh, let's uh, let's wrap this up with our impressions of Sticky Hands. Why, why don't you go first? Well, I mean, so obviously I live here in California, and I get my hands on, unfairly, a, a fair amount of uh, Plenty of the Elder. And I always kind of use it as my benchmark, right? You know, it's sort of the originator of the style because this is a double IPA. And what I have to say is that, I mean, this is right in that same ballpark in terms of overall quality, in terms of overall enjoyment. You know, because I think Plenty of the Elder focuses more on kind of uh, an overall crisp experience. This one focuses more on a little bit of a little bit more sweetness in there, but it's really all there to support this big, massive hop envelope that I don't think that you get in Plenty. So this one is like, I wouldn't say sticky hands as much as after having drunk it, I now have a sticky tongue. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? And I have noticed that after drinking this beer, I, I, my mouth kind of gets dry. And I assume that that's, uh, you know, from the, the typical hop astringency that you can get in having so much in there. But, you know, this has... What what I love about this beer is it's got both the dankness and the fruitiness to the hop character, and those are those are a combination that is just perfect for my tastes. Uh, I don't like a lot of the beers that are like over the top, all citrus, something like that. And, and this is a wonderful, wonderful balance of flavors that makes you drink makes you want to drink more than you should for an eight percent beer. Cool. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, given my uh, current weight class that I'm at, you, know, you were saying, uh, Nick, that you know two of these would be perfect for you, or one and a half, I guess. Uh, one is just about dead on exactly what I need. 
<laughs> we'll switch it switch it to a Gloria Pilsner after that one. Yeah, man, and that is a killer <laughs> Pilsner too. Maybe we'll do that one of these days. There you go. I need to I need to make another trip up there and restock. Okay, we have been talking to Nick Arzner from Block 15 Brewing in Corvallis, Oregon, and drinking their delicious Sticky Hands uh, IPA. Nick, thank you so much for your time being with us today, man. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Great. I uh, hope to see you next time I'm on. Hey, and thanks for the beer. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. Talk to you later, Nick. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Okay, that was Nick Arzner from Block 15 Brewing in Corvallis, Oregon. Let me tell you, if you are in the area or anywhere they distribute, you need to try some of their beer. And if you happen to be in Corvallis, stop by Block 15, great brew pub. The food there is killer also. Yeah, I don't care about the food. I want the beer. More beer. More. <laughs> yeah, well, if you were up here, you'd care about the food, too. All righty. We're going to uh, take a quick break here, and when we come back, it'll be Q&A Palooza time. Yep. Time to go find my thinking cap. Y-Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters, Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham, to bring you the Y-Yeast private collection strains for 2017. We're kicking off the year with some of our favorite British-style strains in honor of the Session Beer Project founded by Lou Bryson and Session Beer Day on April 7th in order to popularize and support the brewing and enjoyment of Session Beers. Beers that are 4.5% alcohol or less and crafted for easy drinking without compromising flavor. Look for Y-Yeast's 1026 British Cask Ale, 1768 English Special Bitter, and 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2, available January through March. Boys and girls, you know that every 12 episodes now, we're making it a tradition that we're going to take an episode or two to do questions and answers with Denny and Drew, where we may or may not give you the right answers as best as we can. So, we've trolled through the archives of people both calling our voicemail box at 626-765-1AL and emailing us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or asking us questions in, well, one of about 100 different ways if I remember to actually copy them into the right buffer. So, Denny has gone through the magic pile and selected a whole host of questions. I have not seen these questions. We will now proceed. And, you know, we like to categorize these. So, we're going to start with questions centering around both the mash That's and right. the malt. Uh, All right. All right. Yeah. Our first question of the marathon comes from Zach Keem. Keem? Whatever, Zach. I hope I got it close. And Zach says... Hi, guys. I have a question about home toasting slash roasting malt. 
A while back, I got a crazy idea to toast roast base malt for a porter. My plan was to use all Golden Promise and with my own oven make all the other malts I needed. I found charts on temperatures and times for the malts, but my experiment did not pan out. The little information I could find stated that I needed to condition the malt for a week to avoid harsh flavors. I put all the malt in a paper bag and let it sit for a week. When I came back, all the malt was stale and I deemed it unusable. How should I properly prepare freshly roasted toasted malt for use in brewing? Does it need to be stored in an airtight container? Was I just wrong to do it in the summer in Baltimore? You may remember our humidity. I haven't retried the experience, but every time I make the porter, I start thinking about home toasting roasting again. Thanks for any help, Zach in Baltimore. Well, Zach, um, you know, I have heard many times a week quoted for how long you need to let the malt uh, rest afterwards. Uh, I don't know if a week is actually necessary. Probably a couple days would be just absolutely fine. Uh, but beyond that, I don't have a whole lot of thoughts about it. Uh, do you, Drew? Yeah, I'm guessing humidity did play a role, but I'm curious as to when he says it tasted stale, uh, what exactly he was perceiving. Because, I mean, you think about it, after people dry malt in Wisconsin and other places like that, you know, it hangs around in silos. It hangs around in other places where, you know, there's probably going to be some more uh, moisture uh, available to it. And, you know, it lasts for a good long while on the shelf. So uh, I'd be a little curious about the the notion of staleness in that particular case. Now, having said that, same thing. Weak is something that I've always heard of as conventional wisdom. I mostly have used it with things like flaked oats when I toast them. Because I did do one time where I, I toasted the oats and then immediately put it in the beer and it just didn't taste right. Um, so I mostly think of that as with... Uh, flake malts that you're toasting. So I would imagine there's probably some of the same thing going on with uh, malt as well, you know, to have a conditioning phase. Um, but yeah, yeah I, don't do it during I the had summer. I the same question about the, the staleness. That seems really funny to me that it would go stale that quickly. So uh, either... either well, yeah, right. Uncracked. So, so I mean, either Zach, maybe you misidentified it as stale, or maybe the malt staling spirits hit your house that night. Uh, well, and of course the other the other thing is, uh, you know, try it again. Just do it in a smaller batch. You know, so maybe going for all yeah. the malts is a bit aggressive to start until you get the hang of it because there are still some things going on there where you know stirring to keep evenness you know making sure you've got the right amount of moisture going uh, in and out you know and plus you're also dealing with malt that's already been right. dry uh, so that's an additional I was complication point out that a lot of people try something like this and they say that they're making their own crystal malt and you can't really do that because crystal malt needs to start with green malt and uh, you know what we're getting has already been uh, been dried and killed so yeah i mean you can make something that kind of approximates what crystal malt would be but uh, just being pedantic about it, you cannot strictly make crystal malt unless you start with green malt. There you go. Well, there you go. So, Zach, we're a little confused, but I would definitely say give it another shot, but try it in smaller quantities until you get the, the hang of it. Because, yeah, I think you're going to 
Needle yeah, and that's a good it, idea. So. Do a smaller quantity, let it rest for a couple days, and see what you think about it. Uh, malt's cheap. It's fun to play around with. Hey, you know, that sounds like a perfect thing to do with a brew in a bag. <laughs> hey, that's a, a good idea, you know? Or with a zymatic or uh, yeah. something like that, too. All right, your there turn. You All right, well, uh, this next one's really for you, Denny, but uh, I'll go ahead and read it. This comes from uh, John Williams over in uh, Canterbury, Australia. And he says... I've been batch sparging using a single batch of sparge wire for quite a while, added after draining off the first runnings, and have been getting between 70 and 75% mash slash water efficiency, calculated from the pre-boiled gravity and volume versus estimated potential extract from my grain bill. That just sounded like I was reading from a car commercial. Yes, it did. Uh, depending on the gravity and grain bill, I stir everything up really well before draining both the first runnings and the runnings from the batch sparge. I use a round cooler with a bazooka screen as my mash lauder ton. I'm wondering if, when batch sparging, there's any benefit to returning either the first runnings or the runnings from the batch sparge back into the mash ton and running it off again. Would there be any efficiency increase from this? My understanding is that batch sparging works by dilution of sugars into the liquid, so that the concentration of sugar in the liquid trapped in the grain is equal to the concentration of the sugars in the liquid being run off. If I've got this right, then adding that runoff liquid back into the mash ton wouldn't result in any additional sugar going into the liquid. But intuitively, putting those runnings back into the mash tun and running off again feels like it would somehow pull more sugar out. What do you think? Cheers, John. Well, John, if you listened uh, to the podcast last week, you would have heard Denny talking about batch sparging. But obviously, he didn't cover this because this is a slightly off air uh, <laughs> application. So, Mr. Khan, you're the batch sparging guy. What okay. do you say? Uh, a couple things, and we'll start with a, a minor one here. Uh, there's no need to stir the mash before the first runoff. Uh, it won't gain you anything in my experience, and you are simply wasting your time. Uh, in terms of returning your runnings, uh, I cannot see why that would pull any more sugar out than simply say using more sparge water or something the the issue here john is that uh, pretty much you already have the uh wort saturated to the limit of solubility of of the sugar uh, at, at that temperature and running the wort back through it again is just not going to do much for you if anything uh the i guess the only thing i could see would be that if you uh, heated it back up to do a step mash or something like that it might increase your efficiency but yeah, i certainly wouldn't mess with it yeah and i'm just thinking obviously i've never done this where i tried to sparge with uh runnings but i've done the whole double double mash thing just what i was thinking where, of where you know you take the runnings and you mash in a whole new bed of grain and i've done that a couple times thinking wow this will be awesome or sugar and I've gotten more sugar in there, but not appreciably more than I think like I would uh, via other means. So given that starting with fresh malt and with the highest sugar concentration and after the mashing, I, I can't imagine you getting much out of trying to sparge with runnings. Yeah, I, I just, I cannot see, I mean, you know, maybe I'll give it a try one of these days just to see if I'm right or wrong, but uh, I just don't think you're going to have any any increase in efficiency that's going to be worth the extra hassle, John. So uh, get done sooner, have a beer sooner, and uh, be happy sooner. Our next question, and this one is for Drew, comes from 
Thomas in Munich, Germany. And Thomas says, Hi, Denny and Drew. Thank you for your great podcast. Well, thank you for saying that, Thomas. I really enjoyed the first episodes of the Brew Files format. Please keep on doing this format. I have a question regarding the wide field of specialty malts. Since I live in Munich, Germany, I have no problems getting base malts and all of the Weiermann and Best products. British and Belgian malts are also available, but it's hard to get some of the American specialty grains that are mentioned in some American recipes, uh, Victory Malt, for example. Could you recommend a reliable database where I can find substitute malts? It seems most German resources focus on European malts, which are no problem to get. Do you think it's an alternative to make do-it-yourself specialty malts in the oven? Thank you and cheers, Thomas. Well, here we go. Back to making your own malt. Take it. I know. It's it's make your own malt day uh, here at the, the podcast. Well, so here's the thing, at least to my mind. I don't know of any good database out there that exists to say, if you're trying to use this, then use that. Um, I know that... You know, like Beersmith does things where it does calculations in terms of, oh, go use this extract, but that doesn't really help you. Truthfully, stopping and thinking about it, there are very few American malts that I can think of that are so distinctively unique that you would have trouble uh, replacing them. Even the Victory Malt example that you have, you're fairly close with a good biscuit malt. Um, you know, yeah, I, mean, I would, really that's I would say basically match the color and you'll be fine. Well, it ma- it match the color and match whether or not the malt's toasted. Yeah, exactly. Or roasted. You know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, if it's a I you know, if it basically take the take the type of malt, you know, whether it's like a a caramel, a crystal malt, you know, then stick with that kind of thing. Um, if it's a base malt, then stay in that category and then match colors. Yeah, I mean, I think really, for the most part, with the specialty malts, you're going to be fine. I don't find much distinctively American about malt. Yeah, sometimes maybe you'll get something that's a little more hay-like. But, I mean, really, go and blend in some uh, good European Pilsner in there. You can get some of those same characters. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, I mean, other than, say, like, six-row, yeah, six-row is difficult to replicate. And you're not going to get the exact flavor of like some of the American crystals, like what you see from uh, Brees. But I really don't think you're missing out on much that way. Yeah, I definitely so, man. So uh, close, yeah. and, close enough is good enough, right? Yeah. And for your question about making the malts in your home oven, go see our previous conversation with uh, Zach about making uh toasted malts you are going to be starting with a different product and ending up with a different product but that's nothing to say that you can't find and make something unique yeah start like we said to zach start with small batches experiment see how it goes there you go all right next one comes from brian from lone tree colorado i wonder how many towns in america are called lone tree i have a feeling (laughs) like there's a bunch all right Uh, but brian says i'm making a large baltic porter that i'm planning to do a party guile off of for the party guile, I'd like to add some smoke to it. It seems that it would be really easy to cold steep the smoked malt, not the peated kind. Thank you, Brian. Uh, 24 hours before the brew day, and then just add it to the last 15 minutes of the boil. I've read this is fine for dark malts. It's called capping. Uh, but I wonder if this would work for a smoked malt. 
Like the dark malt has crystallized the fermentables, whereas the smoke malt will end up providing non-converted sugars. Will that create any problems? If this is a bad idea, the backup plan would be to steep it, as I assume there would be enough enzymes in the malt itself to do the conversions. Thanks, Brian. All right, Denny, you want you want to start? Oh boy, do I ever! Okay, so here's the deal, Brian. You can do that with any kind of malt. This uh, idea, I first heard about it back in 1998 uh, when Marianne Gruber of Brees came out with the idea and George Fix started experimenting with it. And uh, George steeped all kinds of malts and, and mainly base malts. And he was a big fan of steeping Munich and stuff like that. Now, you the reason that you think that this is only for dark malts is because generally that's what you hear about people use it as a workaround for adjusting the ph of their mash dark malts will pull the ph down quite a bit and so if people want to avoid having that happen and avoid having to actually treat their mash to account for that what they will do is add the dark malts later in a process that drew mentioned called capping what you're doing is actually kind of making an extract a bit like cinnamar or something like that and adding that later and i have done this a number of times and you can certainly do what you want to do uh cold steeping though uh is oftentimes done well usually done overnight at least again from marianne's original instructions so you could start steeping this grain the day before and then uh, add it into your boil for say the last 15 minutes or so in relation to your question about enzymes, keep in mind that when you put grains into water, the enzymes go into the water, right? That's why uh, when you're doing a decoction, you pull the grain and not the water because the grain or the, the enzymes have gone into your wort. And uh, if you pulled that and boiled it for a decoction, you would be denaturing the enzymes. But basically what happens is that it, when you're doing a cold steep or cold mash as a way what we're doing um, the enzymes are in the liquid so when you add that liquid to the boil you are in effect going to be getting a, a little bit of conversion before they get so hot that they're that they're denatured i wouldn't worry about it whatsoever it's been done for a number of years by a number of people and it works great yeah it and with the concern, uh, any other concern that you would have, like about you know making a malt extract, because obviously one of the things we have to worry about is malt has lactobacillus living on it all over the place. You're going to be boiling, so you're not going to have to worry about it. I wouldn't do this much further ahead than 24 hours because I would be worried about lactobacillus even at a low level at you know cold temps. But you'll be fine. Uh, yeah. Although I do want to make one small point. Uh, Earlier, uh, Brian said in there that uh, he thinks that dark malt has uh, crystallized the fermentables. Well, dark malts, particularly roasted malts, like what most of us think of with cold steeping, it's not that they've crystallized the fermentables. It's basically they've fried the fermentables. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You pretty much lose your sugar. Uh, you pretty much lose your sugar capacity in a in a roasted grain. So dark malts, you don't have to worry about any sort of sugar addition when you're doing cold steeping because uh, there's no sugar really to be had. So, 
that's just to yeah. clarify that point yeah and and again you know smoked malt is basically a type of munich malt and at least uh you know most of the ones that i know of are and uh you know you're not going to have any troubles doing the cold steep with that and adding it later so go for it brian there you go smoke them out and be happy that's right Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be answering some questions about hops. Stick around. Mm, hops. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. All right, boys and girls, it's time to get your bitter on. Make those bitter beer faces happen, because this is the time for all your questions about that mystical herb, the hop. Denny, why don't you oh, read us oh, the first question? the hop? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, more gunners. Our, uh, our first question comes from Andy Fark, and Andy says, Hello, Drew and Denny. I really enjoyed listening to the results of the IBU experiment, as well as the related interview with Dana Garvis and the story of her lab. I was also shocked to learn that Glenn Tinseth is a real living person and not just some random 19th century British chemist whose name we're stuck with. I'll be sure to let Glenn know. At any rate, I found the discrepancies in IBU measurements between Sam was curious and got to thinking a bit on what other factors might have differed that you didn't mention. Could it perhaps be related to bagging the hops versus letting them float around loose in the boil kettle or some aspect of water chemistry if the Igors were using their local tap water? Time for more experiments, I suppose, or at the very least, collection of more data on brewing practices. Okay, so, uh, Drew, what do you got to say to Andy? Well, first, uh, about his being shocked to learn that Glenn Tenseth was a real person. Yeah, I kind of had the same thing as, like, the old commercial with the M&Ms and Santa. They do exist. He does exist. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally there with you, Andy. Uh, on the front about different factors, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. The actual isomerization process, like, what causes that little alpha acid to change molecules, become water-soluble, and hang out to, until it hits your tongue is incredibly complex and, well, half understood. And there are so many different factors that, that go into it. And obviously, uh, we think boil vigor had something to do with things. Uh, there's impact of gravity, impossible impact of protein content of the wort. In terms of water chemistry, uh, your pH is going to affect it. I don't think mineral load will actually affect it. Uh, not at least anything I've ever read. Oh, that's only mostly in, only that, in perception. That's mostly, yeah. Right. That's, that's perception. Uh, but 
I would bet, you know, there's also some stuff going on, what you said about floating versus in bags. You know, we did have uh, at least one brewer take part in this, I think was doing with a Pico and that keeps all of its hops, hops in a, uh, in a chamber. You know, so yeah, there's there's some of that boil mechanics thing going on in there, definitely. But the boil mechanics question is very complicated because it is kettle geometry, vigor of boil, ambient air temperature, hydrostatic pressure in the outside world due to humidity, yada, yada, yada. So yeah, in terms of more data and more brewing, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely let's do. So basically, let's take a look at this bagging thing. Uh, the rule of thumb and some experimentation has shown that putting hops in bags will probably affect your utilization uh, by about maybe 8 to 10%. Uh, we got a much, much wider variation than that. I think mm-hmm. we were up in like 30 or 40% plus and minus. So bags alone wouldn't necessarily account for that. Water chemistry might. Uh, I tend to think that it's more... Uh, kettle geometry and boil vigor like glenn kept mentioning but again one of the purposes of this experiment was to make people aware that the way they brew and the equipment that they use could very well have an impact on their utilization and the numbers that they're getting so the fact that there was a wide variance to me is not surprising and it's actually part of what we wanted to point out in this whole thing yeah and again to reiterate the lesson out of that was remember that the ibu number that you see is probably a lie and that the real important part is how does that ibu number relate to what you're perceiving from your particular system and your particular taste right right and go with that as I kind of like to say, uh, we don't drink the numbers, we drink the beer, you know? So um, I don't know, man. I drink the Matrix. I see it all around me. <laughs> God. Now, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, if there was a beer Matrix? <laughs> Dude, you can't see it? I feel sorry for you. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, I guess you get to read the next one. All right, and this comes from Gary James. Uh, who says, Dear D&D, hey, one of my favorite games when I was a kid. Thanks for the podcast and for starting a second one. I know, we're crazy. I'm enjoying the split format and the focused single topic theme of the second podcast. It adds a different dimension to the main experimental brewing podcast, which is still, well, not awesome because that's not allowed except for the Grand Canyon. Yay, Gary! So, yeah. so excellent then. I have another question about hops, this time about dry hopping. Over the course of my last 30 brews, I've had three where I'm absolutely certain the perceived bitterness increased significantly when dry hopping. Two of them smoothed out enough to drink, but one was a tip out. I keep comprehensive records so I know that the beers were, one, dry hopped with 100 grams of Amarillo cones at 10.5% alpha for four days when the specific gravity dropped below 1020. Number two, dry hopped with 50 grams of Cascade cones at 6.5% alpha acid for four days when the gravity was 1012. And the last one, dry hopped with a 150 gram mix of Motueka at 7.5%, Galaxy at 15.1%, Nelson Savant at 12.1%, uh, all in pellets for four days. In terms of water, I adjust to get a mash pH of 5.2 to 5.3, and I acidify my sparge water to a pH of 5. I have a high total alkalinity in my tap water. 
I realize that these are big dry hop additions, but no more than is being recommended in some craft beer recipes, and in line with the rates that some craft breweries seem to be using. Now, to the point, I accepted the received wisdom that dry hopping cannot increase bitterness because the alpha acids are not being isomerized, but I was certain that the bitterness has increased, so I did some internet research and turned up this article that you guys are probably familiar with, and it gives a link to Scott Janice's article that we talked about before. Uh, it says, headline, oxidized alpha acids called hemolonins, hemolonins, are found on hops and are extremely soluble in beer. Between humulonones are approximately 66% as bitter as isoalpha acids, they can potentially increase a beer's bitterness during dry hopping. The author found a staggering 33% IBU increase in bitterness through adding 168 grams of dry hops. So my question is, what is your take on this phenomenon, and how can homebrewers manage this potential increase in bitterness when dry hopping, and how do craft breweries get away with such massive dry hop additions? Best wishes from Lincoln, England, Gary James. All right. So... Denny, you want to you run with this? Because I know you talked a lot about Scott's article. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, I, it's been pretty obvious to me for years that dry hopping does increase bitterness. Uh, just That's just my own perception. Scott was actually able to uh, quantify that and, you know, confirm that I'm not crazy, at least in that regard, and that it, it does actually uh, increase the bitterness. So there's that. Like I said, but there's the weird part that... It increases bitterness in terms of perception and then really jacks up the IBU number because it messes with the measurement. Yeah, and, and that's because of the humulinones that are, are there, you know. Um, it, they don't, I mean, in effect, they're kind of like self-isomerizing. Uh, but, I mean, that's not exactly what's happening, on, happening. But because of the, uh, the, the oxidized acids in them, uh, they, they produce the same effect. The other thing to take into account is that different hops will have different effects and different amounts of humulinones and different types of, of oils and acids that will get into the beer. So, you know, it's going to um, vary depending on the type of dry hop you use. Now, how to deal with it? Well, you know, my answer is to make test batches, right? If I want to Put in a huge amount of dry hops to really get that aroma and flavor from them um, then i am making a guess about how bitter i want to make the original beer and i have no problem brewing two three four five two hundred test batches and adjusting say my bittering hops all the way through until i get a good balance between them and the bitterness that i'm getting from my dry hops uh, and I, as a matter of fact, I have a batch of beer on hand right now that was kind of a, uh, an inadvertent test of that. Uh, and, you know, I overbittered it accidentally. And then when I added the dry hops, it became really nasty. And I, <laughs> I like extremely bitter beer. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that was an experiment and I'll have to rebrew it and cut down on the bittering hops, leaving my uh, dry hops the same and see what happens. Yeah. And I think in terms of why the big commercial breweries can get away with some of this that we're not, I remember their, you know, their overall ratios, their overall uh, geometry and their fermenters is a lot different than ours. But also, I think there's a big factor at play in terms of the quality of the hops that they're getting. Uh, remember, you know, uh, craft breweries tend to get their hops out of contracts, which means they've prepaid for the hops and they generally get first cut. So what comes down to us as homebrewers, uh, 
is the increasingly smaller quality cuts. Um, uh, I think that's going to be particularly true when uh, we're looking at imported hops like uh, Gary is over there in uh, Lincoln, England. Now, Amarillo, Cascade, uh, Motueka, Galaxy, and Nelson Savant are none of those are British hops. So I think we're also probably going to deal with additional oxidized oils. We're going to deal with sort of damage that happens when you break things down into much smaller packages and uncertain you know, treatment and shipping, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm guessing a lot of it comes down to hop freshness in terms of why they can get away with it. They haven't had oils go off. They haven't had, you know, damage to the hops themselves. What do you think? You know, could could be. Uh, I, I just don't know. So uh, I, I think that the big thing is knowing how to deal with it, and uh, maybe the answer to that is plan on making at least two batches of any beer you're going to heavily dry hop. Well, and I'll also say, really pay attention to how your dry hops smell when you pull them out before you put them in the beer. Yeah. Because I've I've dry hopped some beers that have ended up being... And I can pretty well guarantee on those that I smelled the dry hops, they didn't smell the best. So... I would say make sure that you're that really when you're going to do the dry hop that you know that you have a good quality hop going in. And you know what? If the hops don't smell good before you put them in, don't put them in. Change your plans. <laughs> That's right, man. That is definitely correct. All righty. I guess that kind of does it for our hops questions. Uh, so uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking yeast and fermentation. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer, beer. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for our favorite workers, the people who are actually making the beer. That's right, those wonderful unicellular fungi called yeast. As we talk about yeast and fermentation, Mr. Danny, read the yes, first sir. question, please. You betcha. Oh, and this is this is one for Drew. I recently brewed a version of Drew's Cezanne de Table and have a question about the free rise called for in his Cezanne guide. Given that it's 30 degrees outside right now in Virginia and my fermentation room is about 65, simply turning off my fermentation mini fridge will not get me up into the mid 80s called for in the guide. I have a firm wrap heater, but I've always wondered about the best practice for heating the fermentation with it. Can I simply set my desired end temp and let it get there as fast as it can? Or do I take a more measured approach of adding a few degrees per day? 
In this case, I decided to split the difference. I pitched at 64, held at 65 for three days, then set my heater to 72, which the beer reached after about five hours. I then waited another day and bumped the temperature up to 79. What are the best practices here? Oh, and in episode 18, it sounds like Marshall heated the Saison too rapidly for your liking, though it's a little unclear how fast this was. But you also say you like to give Saisons a rocket finish by allowing them to get hot, which sounds like it gets cranked really quickly. So I remain confused. Okay, Drew, get hot for us. All right. Well, the first forest, I'm sorry, I'm confused too. But it's a good state to be in because it gives you good Saison. Uh, I think the method that you chose to do the gradual heating over the course of a couple of days is pretty much right on par with what I would do. I actually don't uh, typically worry about it too much because uh, I don't have fermentation rooms that hang out at 65 degrees. <laughs> I have I have nothing but uh, you know garages from hell. So my usual methodology and the reason why I'm not more precise about how I say how I do the ramping is I'll usually do my saisons in a water bath and I'll keep, I'll maintain the water bath at in the low sixties for the first couple of days, you know, those first three days. And then I'll, I'll let the water baths come up naturally. So usually after about a day or two, even in the hottest time during the summer here in the garage, I'll be somewhere in the mid seventies and then it will kind of fluctuate from there. But usually, usually we'll get up into the eighties. Now, why do I say rocket hot or uh, rocket finish? because i like you know verbal imagery that is compelling um, i think as long as you're getting the beer up there i don't usually actually like to rapidly transition yeast to begin with uh even when i'm cold crashing if i'm doing a lager i'll, I'll take it down slowly a, a couple degrees per day but uh yeah for this your first plan was just fine and really the question is how did the beer taste you if the saison that you produced tasted fine and actually finished out correctly, then I think you have probably a basis of a good technique. You're replicating pretty much, I think, exactly what I see when I do my saisons, uh, although I don't have to put as much thought into it. And as for uh, rocket heating, I know part of my bias comes from an experiment that I did years ago where I did a whole bunch of saison strains in the exact same order, exact same time, in the exact same room. And one of the batches I did was with 565, you know, Belgian Saison 1 from White Labs. And the other one was 565, Belgian Saison 1 from White Labs. Different was, difference was one batch fermented at ambient and was allowed to free rise naturally. The other batch had one of those brew belts around it, you know, the little resistive uh, heating belts. And I just basically on day one turned that sucker on, set it to 85, and walked away from it. And that was <laughs> of all the batches of Saison I've ever done. I mean, it fermented like uh, like nobody's business. Yeah, but it tasted awful. So that's the reason why I, I don't like that method. So that's that's my take. I think your process was fine. Uh, like I said, you're kind of mimicking what I end up doing anyway, which is allowing it to free rise over the course of you know three four days, and then kind of settling up into the 80s. Uh, otherwise, I can't really think of anything else to tell you except for if it tasted good, keep doing it. Cool. All right, and our next question comes from oh my. Tim. That's a name. Tim. Tim Goforth. TK Goforth. All right. Man, some of these names. Uh, Denny, it was great to meet you at the Beer Stein in Eugene the other day. Oh, somebody got to meet you. Yeah. You actually exist. Yeah. Uh, thank you for taking the time to chat while you had a few Belgian bottles to taste. As I said, both your shows are great. 
Uh, before I ask my question while drinking a Duval, I will be kind of long-winded here about my brewing history. I brewed my first batches of beer in about 1974 out of some dusty cans of extract, very dry hops, and dried yeast from somewhere. We fermented the wort in 8-gallon plastic garbage cans with plastic across the top and used a hydrometer to determine when fermentation was complete. You used a hydrometer? That's amazing. Who knew we were doing open fermentation? We bottled it, and I can't remember ever waiting for it to sit for more than a week. College days. I started brewing again about 1982. I actually had a pamphlet with recipes from the place I brought extract, dried up yellow hops, and dried brewing yeast. This time I had a glass carboy and an airlock, bottling equipment, and patience. Uptown equipment. This lasted until about 1985. 1995, I started up again while I was living outside of Portland, got a starter kit from Midwest and an extract kit, and purchased Palmer's book at some time about then. Did three or four batches of extract, then dove into all grain, kegging, fermenters, etc. I live on a ranch now, two hours from Eugene, and my metal shop is more of a brew house. But I still use my homemade Kegel's gravity system and my blue cooler. I thought about going electric or herms or rims, but I like the simplicity and peace of not responding to buzzers, flashing lights, etc. So, finally, my question. I want to harvest slash reuse my yeast. I did it before, it just made a simple sense. Now, reading beer books and articles, I'm confused. Do I use the yeast from my primary or from secondary? Can I just pour new wort with yeast nutrient on the secondary tube slash slurry in the fermenter? It's no big deal to buy fresh yeast and make a yeast starter, but my brew supply stores often don't have what or enough of the yeast I'm looking for. My second duval is almost gone. Thank you for your time, Tim. Mm, duval. Wow. First of all, I want to say I'm impressed, man. Two duvals. Wow. I, I can kind of remember the days I used to do that. Okay. My problem with two, my problem with two duvals yes. is two duvals leads to three duvals. Three duvals <laughs> leads to four. Uh, and then it's nap time, right? No, that's not that's not called a nap. That's called a coma. Yeah, right. Okay. So first thing, Tim, uh, I want to tell you right now, I stopped using a secondary many years ago. Uh, I just don't do it. Uh, the current advice, which I think is very good advice, is unless you're adding more fermentables, there's really no need to do a secondary. Just leave it in primary uh, for as long as your combined primary and secondary would be, and you're good to go. Okay, so that means that I pretty much always harvest yeast from my primary. And I, th I think that that's a good idea because if if you do use a secondary, I think that the yeast from the primary is going to be healthier and the yeast in the secondary is going to be the less flocculent yeast and you may not want that. I have a very, very simple method for harvesting and reusing yeast. First, keep in mind, I ferment in buckets, not carboys. I gave up carboys probably close to 15 years ago after I broke two of them in one brewing session and lost 10 gallons of a double decocted pills uh didn't want that to happen again plus i'm clumsy and i knew i'd hurt myself so i'm i'm fermenting in buckets and i save the yeast in half gallon plastic tubs with snap-on lids uh actually uh that's what i used to get my extract in when i bought it from uh, the local homebrew shop and uh, I saved them. And what I do now is I sanitize them. Generally, I use iodophore for it because uh, iodophore is better at fighting wild yeast than uh, something like star sand. So it will help preserve your stored yeast in a little bit better shape. 
So when I get done with my primary, I rack off almost all the beer to uh, my keg, but I leave just a little bit, maybe like a half inch or so in the fermenter. I take a sanitized spoon, I stir all that stuff up so that it's mixed very well, and I pour a third to a half of it into each one of these uh, sanitized plastic tubs that I have there, snap on the lid, and stick them in my fridge. That's it. I like using plastic containers because, believe it or not, even in the fridge, uh, it's going to keep on fermenting very, very slowly. And I have had an experience of a glass jar of yeast that was sealed too tightly, exploding, and I don't want to pick pieces of uh, glass out of my beer fridge again. Um, so the plastic containers work great for that. Uh, you know, the lids may bulge a bit. Uh, worst case, one will maybe like pop up a bit but you're not going to end up with broken glass anywhere. When I'm ready to use it, I just take it out of the fridge and pour it into the next batch, and that's it. Uh, I don't go crazy over cell counts or exact amounts. My experience is that a third of a slurry from a previous batch is perfect for an average gravity beer and half of a slurry is great uh, for those beers that are like in the 1070 1080 range that's it man it just can't get much simpler than that well i think i'm pretty close in terms of what i do as what you do uh, i'm usually not trying to save a yeast for a long period of time most of the time if i'm dealing with uh, repitches it's almost immediate and so i'll do the, pretty much a very simplified process of yeah, rack out, sanitize the hell out of the container that's got the yeast in it at the moment, transfer that into a mason jar with usually topped with foil that's been sanitized, and then you know allow that to settle, pour off some, and then add in some fresh wort in order to keep everything nice and active until I get it ready for the next wort. And that's usually what I'm doing that for is when I do uh, really, really big beers. And I make a starter batch and use that to go into the next one. And in that case, I pretty much use the whole dang cake. I'm talking massive beers, though. Right. You when so we, what you're saying is when you're storing yeast, you pour wort back into it, or was that to get it started up again? No, that's to get it started up again. Okay, so I'll, I'll let it, I'll let it sit under under beer. Yeah, but right. I'm usually not doing this for yeah, more than like two that's weeks. That's the thing you want to keep it under beer, and uh, from what I understand, beer is better than using distilled water or something like that. Uh, many people uh, find this a perfect use for Bud Light or whatever the uh, discount beer that's around <laughs> is. They can uh, just pour that on top of their yeast slurry that they're saving to kind of uh, keep the top of it submerged. But uh, yeah. whatever yeah, works, make, make sure it's Bud Light, not Bud Light Lime. <laughs> yeah right one last yeast question okay drew the last yeast question goes to you and it comes from brock freeman and it says hi denny and drew thanks so much for the podcast very interesting and provides me a lot of inspiration for brewing i recently visited a homebrew shop that was giving away expired yeast i figured what the hell might as well try it 
I was wondering if you had any best practices for reinvigorating old yeast packs, and also if there would be any impact to successive generations of this yeast as compared to using a fresh new package. Thanks again for the entertainment and continued help and inspiration. P.S. I really enjoy the brew files. The focus and time length are perfect for my drive to work. Drew has convinced me to brew a cream ale now. All right. I am going to convince everybody to brew cream ale. You come hell or high water. You won't be convincing me. Right, fine. I'll, I'll convince you to make a cream IPA. Okay, there you um, go. <laughs> just, we'll just change the name. It's not cream ale. It's cream pale ale. That's right. Uh, all right. So, Brock, uh, looking at your question here, giving away expired yeast. Well, my local homebrew store, the one that I've gone to for years and years and years, has a policy of giving away yeast the second it's anywhere near its expiration date. He's always been very obsessive about keeping fresh yeast in stock. So I have walked away with more than one pack of expired yeast, and I have used more than one pack of expired yeast that's been expired by a good long measure. I think the longest I've gone is somewhere around 18 months, thereabouts. And the real thing, the real trick with it is you'd be surprised at how hardy those little yeast cells are. And all I really do is I start them in a small starter. Uh, and by a small starter, what I mean is I make a pint. So I pressure can all my starter wort. So I actually have a couple pints of starter wort on hand. And I'll use one of those to start, give the yeast a day or two until I see activity. And then I'll grow it up and make it into a much larger starter, uh, typically somewhere around a half gallon or more, depending upon you know how much assurance I want to have or how big the, the target beer is. Uh, and that's really all I do. I make sure I have proper yeast nutrient in the starter wort, uh, give it a lot of time, give it a lot of care, don't let it get too hot. Um, I'll If I'm feeling really obsessive, uh, back in the day I used to use a stir plate. I don't really use one anymore. Uh, so really it's just make a small starter and then keep growing it up. If you look at the old, uh, the old yeast care handling uh Protocols, they talk about doing 10 times steps. So starting 10 milliliters, add 100 milliliters of wort, you know, add 1,000 milliliters, you know, et cetera, to grow. I don't really do that. I pretty much just go by uh, pint to quart to two quarts and maybe beyond. So it helps that I store my most of my starter wort in quarts and half-gallon half jars. <laughs> that might be lazy. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that's all. That's literally all I do. Now, in terms of differences in the yeast in terms of subsequent generations i at the homebrewing level don't tend to do a lot of subsequent generations of yeast because i have a lot of uh, a lot of fresh yeast at my beck and call and i don't mind going and getting uh, fresh yeast now having said that i know that a lot of commercial breweries or pretty much all commercial breweries will repitch until they get woogie about their strain and most of them will tell you that the yeast doesn't really kind of kick in until generation three whether or not that's going to matter here with expired yeast as opposed to fresh off the, the pack yeast, um, I'm going to guess that you're probably going to have a harder time getting strong fermentation characteristics out of your more expired yeast over subsequent generations. Probably take longer to get up to that same performance curve. But assuming that your sanitation is correct, that you're giving it good nutrients, you're giving it good oxygen, you're treating the thing right, and really giving it the baby treatment that it didn't have while it spent all that time in a pack, I, I think for our purposes, you're going to be just fine. Yeah, I do. I do pretty much the same thing as as you do in terms of uh, using really old yeast. I guess the oldest one I've used was two and a half years. A a pack of uh, Y yeast thirty five twenty two that uh, I was given 
when it was expired and then it got shoved to the back of my fridge for uh, like a year and a half and when i found it it was kind of a challenge to see what the heck would happen so i did the same thing i started it up in a very small amount of word i might have even done less than a pint because it was so old and then stepped it up several times uh, i don't worry about the 10 to 1 rule either i go for as much as seems reasonable to me so you know and that that worked fine for the year and a half old or two and actually two and a half year old yeast had no problems i do tend to store it and repitch at least two or three times sometimes even more than that and what i have found with old yeast is that basically when you pitch it and this is assuming that you're pitching it into a friendly environment you know something like a a 10 45 10 55 beer that basically what's happening is that you are growing healthy new yeast in there and that repitching that slurry will work just fine for you uh obviously you don't want to uh, be a super yeast abuser and uh, take yeast from a 1080 wort and try and repitch it no matter how old the yeast is yeah i was gonna say don't uh, don't go and use your first generation of expired yeast for your mega stout save that for the <laughs> no. subsequent cake T- take it easy on it take it easy on it <laughs> it's had a long nap that's right Hey, All right. Well, hey. Guess what? We're out of time. A- oh no. Oh yes, right. it's true. Yeah, you guys asked too many damn questions. <laughs> well, I don't know if there's too many, but there's too many for just one show. So I guess that uh, next episode we'll be back with even more Q and A, huh? Yeah, indeed. So that means if you haven't asked a question and want to ask a question. Well, if you hear this episode, you better record fast because we're going to be recording about that time. <laughs> so get your questions in if you have anything more, and we'll see if it fits one of the categories. If not, it will go into one of the regular episodes at a later date. Uh, but yeah, and hey, also on the same token, the next episode's also going to be our Brewing Disasters episode. That's right. We're doing your Q&A and some brewing disasters. So if you've got a brewing disaster that you want to share with us, either email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or you can call our phone number at 626-765-1AL and leave us a voicemail. That's the easy and fun way to do it. And uh, otherwise, in program notes, I just want to mention uh, real quick back at the top of the show there when we were talking about uh, all the different ways you can support us, that was my lovely dog, Janie, introducing herself to you in the background. So uh, there you go. Uh, We support pooches to the point where we'll even have them on the show. Uh, Probably a better interview than some people, huh? Well, and I was going to say... Astute listeners might be able to hear a certain dog snoring in the background right now. (laughs) Drew and I are never without our dogs when we're recording. And one more quick note about something you might be interested in. On March 28th, I'll be doing a Zymergy Live webinar for the AHA. You can uh, join in if you're an AHA member. I'll be discussing my philosophy of recipe design and evaluation online. You can ask questions, uh, all that cool stuff. Uh, If you can't make it that night, it will be recorded. So if you're an AHA member, you can listen to it later. So uh, go to the website, homebrewersassociation.org, and check out how to join in on the Zymergy Live webinar on March 28th on recipe design and evaluation. Hope you make it. 
Hey, thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. Uh, we are on tons of different beer discussion forums hanging around out there. Uh, so look around. You'll find us. Uh, you can find me on the AHA forum a lot. Drew spends a lot of time on the Reddit home brewing forum. And don't forget, if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to just get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.